Jones, Communist. This presentation was first made to the Stalin Society in London, England, by Ella Rule on the 22nd of March, 2009. Claudia Jones often thought of her mother. At a party given for her in New York, Claudia spoke about the early influences that pointed her in the direction of communism. On this, my 37th birthday, I think of my mother. My mother, a machine worker in a garment factory, died when she was just the same age as I am today, 37 years old. I think I began then to develop an understanding of the suffering of my people and my class and to look for a way to end them. Extract from a speech by Claudia Jones at the Hotel Teresa, New York on the 21st of February, 1952. Right from the start, Claudia realized that what she and her family was suffering in New York was also being suffered by working class people of every race and nationality, even if black people and women were often suffering more. A recent issue of British Stamps featured Claudia Jones, describing her as a civil rights activist. Her best known achievement is that she is considered the mother of the Notting Hill Carnival, the biggest carnival in Europe, all very respectable, but concealing the fact that, first and foremost, Claudia was a communist. She became a communist at the age of 18. Her reason for doing so was that in the United States where she grew up, the only political party fighting the country's institutionalised racism was the Communist Party. In particular, the Communist Party of the USA, CPUSA, had taken up the case of the Scottsboro Boys, nine black youths unjustly accused in 1931 of raping two white women and convicted without any serious opportunity to defend themselves by an all-white jury. The Communist Party took the lead in this matter, eventually being joined by the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, NAACP, in forming the Scottsboro Defence Committee. Because of the work of this committee, five defendants were released and the four other defendants' death sentences were commuted to lengthy terms of imprisonment instead. One of the two women who had allegedly been raped courageously withdrew her testimony and admitted that she had succumbed to pressure in Alabama to make false accusations. But still, the US justice system was incapable of declaring all the defendants to be innocent. However, the fact that the CPUSA had mobilised to save their lives and, in the course of the mobilisation, had also taken a stand against segregation in public services and exposed the inherent racism of the legal system meant that it gained massive support from working-class black people. It was in this context that Claudia joined the Young Communist League the YCL, in 1934. In a speech made to a court in February 1953, Claudia explained, 
It was out of my Jim Crow experiences as a young Negro woman, experiences likewise born of working class poverty, that led me to join the Young Communist League and to choose the philosophy of my life, the science of Marxism-Leninism. That philosophy that not only rejects racist ideas, but is the antithesis of them. Intelligent, hardworking, committed, Claudia rose rapidly in the ranks of the YCL. According to Buzz Johnson, the organiser of the political education classes at the time recalls that Claudia quickly grasped the scientific basis of the economic and historical theories and developed a deep interest in the theory of scientific socialism. She studied and worked hard. Claudia was elected to the chair of the National Council of the YCL in 1940, became education officer for New York State in 1940, and national director in the same year. She worked on the YCL's weekly newspaper, for which she wrote regularly, and in due course became its editor. In 1945, Claudia was accepted into membership of the CPUSA and was appointed editor for Negro Affairs in the party's newspaper, The Daily Worker. In 1947, she was appointed executive secretary of the National Women's Commission and in 1948 was elected to the National Committee of the CPUSA. In 1952, she was assigned to the National Peace Commission, which was leading the opposition to the Korean War. And in 1953, she became the editor of Negro Affairs Quarterly, a party journal. In these various capacities, Claudia toured the US extensively to speak at meetings in all 48 states, excluding Alaska and Hawaii. She was welcomed as a powerful orator with a deep understanding of the party's policies. Her devotion to the cause is further proved by the fact that she undertook this punishing schedule despite very poor health. Tuberculosis contracted when she was 17 had left her with a weak heart which frequently caused her lengthy hospitalizations. She did not, however, allow herself to become an invalid, but, on the contrary, undertook a much heavier burden of work than was the norm. During the Second World War, while the US was fighting on the same side as the Soviet Union against Hitler, the Communist Party was able to build up its forces. At this time, opportunities opened up for the poorest sections of American society, including black people, in war industries and in the armed forces. Once the war was over, however, and the army demobbed, competition for jobs intensified, and it was taken for granted that black people could be dismissed to make way for unemployed white people. The US ruling class had no compunction whatsoever in exploiting American workers' racist weaknesses to turn their anger against black workers, with frustrated whites resorting with alarming regularity to the lynching of black people who were subjected to a reign of terror. In these post-war conditions, communism, 
which was fighting tooth and nail against racism, and to defend the rights of all workers to work and to decent living conditions, became an increasing threat to the US ruling class. It responded by mobilising anti-communist hysteria, using propaganda techniques undoubtedly copied from Nazi Germany. Legislation was passed that was designed to curtail the activities of communists, and needless to say, Claudia Jones, as one of the most active and prominent members of the CPUSA, soon found herself being prosecuted and harassed under this legislation. The two principal acts involved were known as the Smith Act, Alien Registration Act 1940, and the McCarran Act, Internal Security Act 1950. The Smith Act made it illegal for any alien to engage in subversive activities, i.e. to advocate overthrowing the government of the US by force or violence. The McCarran Act applied to American citizens as well, requiring all Communist Party members to register with the Attorney General. This was the act under which Paul Robeson had his passport and right to travel revoked by the US government from 1950 to 1958. Claudia's first arrest was on the 19th of January 1948, under the Smith Act. She was one of 150 aliens that the US sought to deport at this time. She was liable to deportation because she was technically a Trinidadian, even though she had lived in the US for 24 of her 23 years, had no links whatever to Trinidad, or indeed to anywhere else. She was locked up in a prison on Ellis Island, within sight of the Statue of Liberty, which prompted the editor of the US Daily Worker to write the following. The Lady with the Lamp, the Statue of Liberty, stands in New York Harbour. Her back is squarely turned on the USA. It's no wonder, considering what she would have to look upon, she would weep if she had to face this way. Claudia was bailed out of jail by the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born, a party-supported organisation, and the CPUSA organised for letters of protest to be sent to President Truman. Claudia refused to participate in the hearings on the ground that they were unconstitutional, the US Constitution guaranteeing freedom of speech and thought, and the case was adjourned. However, a deportation order was in the end made in June 1950, against which an appeal was immediately launched. In October 1950, with the appeal against the Smith Act, deportation still pending, new proceedings were brought against her under the McCarran Act, which had newly come into effect. Undoubtedly, the principal motivation behind these new proceedings was Claudia's stance, and that of her party, against the war of aggression, against the war of aggression launched by the US and its allies against Korea in June 1950. At her trial, held between the 31st of March 1952 and February 1953, Claudia was convicted and ordered 
to serve a year and a day in jail and thereafter to be deported. She appealed. Of course, she lost the appeal and finally commenced serving her jail sentence in January 1955. She was extremely ill with coronary heart disease, yet was denied the salt-free diet she needed until a court ordered she should have it or be released. It should be noted that the CPUSA was not an illegal party. In none of the court proceedings did the prosecution admit that the real reason for the persecution of communists, especially those of foreign birth, was to reduce the Communist Party's ability to campaign against racism, against war, and in favour of justice for the American poor. Instead, the alleged crime was advocating the overthrow by force of the US government. Claudia's main defence, which one assumes is the defence of the CPUSA wanted her to run, was that the party did not advocate the use of violence to overthrow the US government. In fact, however, conditions were not ripe in the US for overthrowing the US government by force, so the party could not be said to have been advocating this at that time. However, at the time, the party would have adopted Christianite revisionism, revisionist concepts, of there being a peaceful road to socialism, and in that context, the defence was genuine. What brought Claudia down was evidence that, in party schools, texts such as Lenin's State and Revolutions were still studied, and it is certain that, at the time, party members would still have been arguing at such schools of the inevitability of use of force in the process of overthrowing capitalism. The defence of the unconstitutionality of the laws under which Claudia was being tried was also brought. As one commentator said at the time of the Smith Act, the law of ill fame is unconstitutional because it violates the First Amendment by penalising the advocacy of political ideas. It runs counter to the great American tradition of free speech, which has always held the opinion and advocacy, even of revolution, are permissible in our democracy and that only overt illegal acts or direct incitements to which are punishable. This comment is equally applicable to the McCarran Act. The McCarran Act. This defence could have been followed through by pointing out that the United States was established by people who rose up in arms against the legitimate government of Great Britain over the territory. Quite rightly, Claudia pointed out that she was being persecuted because, quote, As a Negro woman, I have dared to challenge the civil rights lip service cry of Truman's reactionary administration, which has yet to lift a finger to prosecute the lynchers, the Ku Klux Klan, or the anti-Semites. In the face of such institutionalised injustice, it was entirely within the American traditions which its constitution claimed to uphold that such an unjust regime ought to be overthrown. In the end, despite the best efforts of the CPUSA, 
Claudia Jones decided on her release from jail to abandon her appeals against deportation on the understanding that she would be deported to Britain rather than Trinidad. It must have been an important consideration that, in Britain, medical treatment was available that would not have been available in Trinidad. She boarded the Queen Elizabeth on the 9th of December 1955 amid a crowd of hundreds who had come to bid her farewell. Almost immediately after her arrival in Britain, Claudia was admitted to St Stephen's Hospital in London, suffering from combined hypertensive and arteriosclerotic heart disease, calcifying pleuritis and non-specific bronchitis with emphysema. Claudia in London Claudia came to London with an enthusiastic endorsement of her capabilities from the Communist Party of the USA. She made contact with the Communist Party of Great Britain, the CPGB, and was enrolled as a member. The CPGB, however, appears to have made little use of her talents, and various people have described her relationship with the party as difficult. Claudia's biographers, Rigva Sherwood and Carol Boyce-Davies, are anti-communists whose interest in Claudia was sparked by their black nationalist sympathies. Claudia herself, although in the forefront of fighting for the interests of black people, was in no way a black nationalist. She was very clear in her proletarian class orientation. She had already spoken to the US court of her, quote, passionate idea of fighting for full, unequivocal equality for my people, the Negro people, which as a communist, I believe, can only be achieved allied to the cause of the working class. However, because of Claudia's heroic stance while in the US and her outstanding achievements in Britain in initiating carnival and mobilising in this country against racism, and racist immigration laws. Black nationalists cannot but be interested in her, but this is despite her communist affiliations, not because of them. The black nationalist perspective is always tainted by a belief that racism is ingrained in white people, for which reason it is necessary for black people to organise separately against white people in order to promote their interests. For this reason, these biographers are anxious to stress the difficulties Claudia appears to have encountered within the CPGB and to attribute these difficulties to the race prejudice of party members. However, America Sherwood gives of race prejudice within the party do not support her case very well because she is forced to admit that after inner party debate on the issues in question, e.g. whether there should be separate black branches and the removal of somewhat chauvinist formulations regarding the relationship of Britain to the colonies, following the establishment of socialism, the progressive side won the argument in every case. On the other hand, it is strange that Claudia was a given no paid employment within the party, similar to what she had had in the CPUSA, B. Was never a member of any higher organ of the party. And C. 
despite her extensive journalistic experience in the US, rarely contributed articles to the Daily Worker. Clearly all was not well between Claudia and the party. This problem led her to write a memorandum to the party, which is preserved in the CPGB archives. Another aspect I want to raise in the party's evaluation towards me as an individual regarding getting settled down in this country, both politically and financially, I want clarification as to what basis and what estimate they have of my assets to the party. There have been times when I have resisted concluding that either I'm to be retired from political life or so invalided, that I must lead a sedentary life, or, if the opposite is true, then not only clarification, but some implementation would appear to be required. In a tribute to Claudia's funeral, Gertrude Elias mentioned that One day I ran into Claudia in Oxford Street and I asked her You are probably sent all over the country to address meetings. That's why we never see you on a London platform. Ha! she said in her very own way. Not at all. I might as well be dead. Claudia's Political Positions We would almost certainly have more concrete knowledge of her political positions had the political journal which Claudia kept all her life and from which she was accustomed to reading extracts to her close friends had not disappeared after her death. The behaviour of the party towards her does suggest that she had major differences with the party leadership and certainly she fought within the CPGB as she had within the CPUSA for the adoption of correct policies and activities on the question of race and internationalism. It does not follow, however, that racism within the party was the reason for Claudia's isolation. The fact is that throughout Claudia's life in Britain, the CPGB had split the communist movement in Britain by following a Christianite line that demanded a. the denunciation of Stalin b. the adoption of the policy of the possibility of a peaceful road to socialism. And after 1963, when the Communist Party of China made its criticisms public, c. the denunciation of China and Mao Zedong because they opposed Christianism. It seems clear that Claudia was at odds with the party leadership on all these points. As a loyal party member to the end of her life, she did not publicly state her views. However, the fact that she maintained a close relationship with Comrade Abimanyu Manchada, a prominent communist who was expelled from the CPGB for opposing the revisionist policies it had adopted after Khrushchev came to power in the USSR, until her death is indicative of her political thinking on the question of Stalin and on the question of China since Manchanda himself was a strong supporter of both. Her support for China is further proved by the visit she made to China in 1964, a few months before she died, when she was highly enthused by everything she saw. On her return from China, she wrote, I observed firsthand with my own eyes the magnificent achievements of 15 years of socialist construction and its effect on lives agricultural industry, 
and society of the 650 million people of the new socialist China. I talked and I spoke to many of China's leaders, in government, in the people's communes, in light and heavy industry, in the ardent revolutionary men, women, youth and children of new socialist China who were led by the Chinese Communist Party and their world communist leader, Chairman Mao Zedong. These great achievements in socialist construction in new China is based on its policy of self-reliance, which permeates every aspect of its society, in agriculture and industrialization, in light and heavy industry. A new morality pervades the ancient land, which less than 15 years ago was engaged in a bitter, protracted, anti-imperialist armed struggle to free itself from the ravages of feudalism, semi-colonialism, bureaucratic capitalism, and imperialism, and achieve victory over US imperialism, the Kuomintang puppets, and Japanese militarists. Claudia was an honoured guest in China, in a delegation that went to meet comrade Mao Zedong himself, whom she met twice, once as a part of a South American delegation, and once on her own. The CPGB's record on internationalism and fighting race racism at that time was by and large an honourable one. Members of the party had set up a British branch of the Caribbean Labour Congress. In May 1948, and the CLC's paper Caribbean News was set up in 1952 and kept going until 1956, printed on the CPGB's printing press at no cost to the CLC although Marika Sherwood claims that the CLC received little support from the party. Trevor Carter wrote that, The CLC kept our morale in the face of racism from all sides at the workplace, gave us political direction and enabled us to make a collective contribution to the labour movement as black workers. It was the CLC which was, which was responsible for organising the presence of young black people at the World Youth Festivals. As CLC members, we carried out hundreds of speaking engagements at trade union branches up and down the country, either drumming up support for independence movements in the West Indies, or organising opposition to the first moves towards racist immigration laws in Britain. The CLC, incidentally, was prescribed as a communist front by both the Labour Party and the TUC. Furthermore, Trevor Carter is forced to admit that the CPGB was the only party in Britain that was in complete opposition to quotas and controls for Commonwealth immigrants. Claudia Jones herself wrote this in context. All other parties have capitulated in one way or another to this racialist measure, a recent statement of the Executive Committee of the British Communist Party declared its opposition to all forms of restrictions on coloured immigration, declared its readiness to contest every case of discrimination, urged repeal of the Commonwealth Immigration Act and called for equality of access for employment, rates of wages, promotion to skilled jobs and opportunities for apprenticeship and vocational training. 
It also projected the launching of an ideological campaign to combat racialism, which, it noted, infects wide sections of the British working class. It is, of course, impossible that the party's entire membership should be completely free of race prejudice. Britain had long justified its imperial activity on the pretext that inferior races benefited from having Britain controlling their countries, and the belief that black people were inferior was deeply embedded in the psyche of most white British people. The British bourgeoisie, through its control of the media and the labour aristocracy, took advantage of this race prejudice to divert British people into blaming immigrants for their deprivation, to which the bourgeoisie subjected the working class, whether they were white or black, and the media were full of hysterical articles about the need to avoid being swamped, much as today the bourgeois media never allow a day to go by without giving a nudge to backward racist thinking, with a plethora of articles that explain how the government has lost control of immigration. The implication of all this agitation is that the presence of immigrants in this country is a terrible problem, propaganda of which all bourgeois political parties, not just the extreme right, take full advantage, especially at election time. However, it is clear that the CPGB did give a lead in combating that racism, and indeed was the only British party doing so. Of course, it is possible because of its policy of seeking alliance with the Labour Party, which was then, as it is now, a party of imperialism, that it toned down its activity to some extent in order to avoid offending Labour aristocrats, promoting colour bars in some British unions. Nevertheless, whatever its weakness, whatever the backwardsness of some of its ordinary members, it was possible for party members to work effectively as party members on issues of race. Trevor Carter quotes a black communist expressing views that Claudia almost certainly shared. I stayed in the communist party because I disagreed with those who claimed that racism of the left was an inherent and permanent feature of their attitudes. I felt that since racism was part of the ideological structure of a bourgeois capitalist society, those same comrades could learn and change their attitudes. An important feature in my thinking was that, in order to liberate myself and other black people, we have also got to help liberate our white brothers and sisters. You can't win one struggle without the other. But what convinced me more than anything was seeing how the many black comrades who left the party found themselves in what I could describe as a rudderless ship and how quickly careerism became of paramount importance in their lives. I was one of those who went to complain to Johnny Golan about the lack of black leadership in the party but I have stuck with it. That was the only serious disagreement I've had with the party in all these years. I don't think the party is dealing properly with racism and sometimes I get angry. But I know who I am. I am a communist 
and I have come to terms with where I can and can't reach. I have a sense of fulfilment as a communist and I'm not selling out. The Labour Party occasionally has enticed me, but I know that my political education anywhere but in the Communist Party. The West Indian Gazette and Carnival Claudia's arrival in London happened to coincide with the demise of Caribbean News, which for reasons explained above had never been an official party newspaper. Yet never had the need for such a newspaper been more acute. At the time Claudia arrived in London, black people living in this country were subjected to gross discrimination in the provision of housing and of services. The Race Relations Act did not come into law until 1975, and before then, colour bars were not illegal and were found and were to be found everywhere. In employment, in rental housing, in the grant of mortgages, in catering and more, black people were subjected to daily humiliation. Black people were arriving from the West Indies in large numbers, partly because immigration to the United States had recently been blocked, and partly because of the active recruitment of black people for jobs in the National Health Service, the NHS, and in transport in particular. What could be more natural for Claudia than that, as a communist, she should put herself to work within the black community in order to serve its needs. It would have been self-evident to Claudia that it was a matter of utmost priority for communists to take up the question of racism, both because it is the duty of communists to defend the interests of all sections of the working class, and it is their duty to fight strenuously to prevent the bourgeoisie dividing the working class against itself. She had acquired, through her work in the Communist Party of the USA, both the journalistic skills and the organisational skills to bring out a replacement newspaper for Caribbean News, which she proceeded to do with effect from 1958. Some two years after her arrival, although she did not secure free printing facilities from the party, she sought, however, to give her West Indian Gazette, Whig, a broader appeal than its predecessor by focusing beyond simply the employment issues that had been the latter's main concern. She also dealt extensively with Caribbean people's contribution to the arts, for example. She also ensured her readership was kept informed of anti-imperialist struggles worldwide, as well as of political developments in the West Indies. Whig was present to celebrate Castro's revolution by promoting the film Island of Flame. It shook its fist at the Congo Civil War and the abandonment of Patrice Lumumba. It printed the picture of Lumumba without his spectacles, bound in a truck to be delivered into the hands of the rival Myos Chumbe, the West Placeman in Katanga. In Katanga, it reported the Sharpville ma massacre and the Rivonia and the Rivonia trials, the names of Walter Sisulu, Nelson Mandela, Oliver Tambo, and Robert Saboki were known in Whig's readers. Freedom fighters labelled by the British national broadsheets as troublemakers at best and terrorists by definition. 
There was no louder voice than Whigs on Commonwealth issues or on decolonisation. In other words, it was not a black nationalist paper, but a progressive paper that sided with the struggles of the proletariat at a national level and with anti-imperialist struggles internationally. In the summer of 1958, only five months after the first issue of the West Indian Gazette appeared, the racist ideology being promoted by the media and the various bourgeois political parties erupted into riots, first in Nottingham and then in Notting Hill, in areas with large black populations, but where the poor, both black and white, were crowded into substandard accommodation. In Notting Hill, the riots broke out on the 30th of August 1958, arising out of taunts made by the white lumpen elements to a mixed-race couple, egged on by Oswald Mosley's fascist union movement and other racist organisations. Crowds would gather in the area to shout slogans, such as, let's find another Negro. PC Michael Leach wrote, there were several hundred people, all white, congregated about the footway and shouting obscene remarks like we will get the black bastards. Thus mobilised, disaffected white youth set out to attack defenceless black people who in their turn formed self-defence groups and fought back. Although the main riots ended on the 5th of September, the situation was tense for several months. And on the 17th of May the following year, a young black student, Kelso Cochran, from the Caribbean island of St. Vincent, was murdered by a gang of six white youths who were never caught or brought to trial. The riots, according to Carter, changed the way we saw ourselves. We had been used to the everyday verbal abuse in the streets, in shops, factories and on the buses. Teddy boys used to pick fights, but we did not fear for our own lives or think that our houses could be burned down. In these circumstances, the West Indian Gazette came into its own as a campaigning tool. It supported those organising self-defence and anti-racist and anti-fascist campaigns, and it raised money for the defence of both black and white youths who were being prosecuted for putting up resistance for fascist violence. Claudia Jones and Abhinanyu Machanda became founder members of a board organisation designed to unite all those who could be united against racist violence and the institutionalised racism of the British state apparatus. The organisation in question was the Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, which was, quoted by Marika Sherwood, modelled by its founder, Amy Ashford Gar Ashwood Garvey, on her US experience with the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People. The organisation was broad enough to include various petty bourgeois elements, who were earnest in their desire to promote its aims, including such establishment figures as David Pitt, subsequently made a life peer, Fenner Brockway MP, who were both members of the Labour Party. Following the murder of Kelso Cochran, the organisation was broadened still further and became the Interracial Friendship Coordinating Council, of which Claudia became co-vice-chair, 
while Manchanda undertook secretarial duties. Subsequently, the British bourgeoisie responded to the riots with proposals to limit black immigration into Britain that ultimately culminated into the passing of the Commonwealth Immigrants Act 1962. This was the first of a whole series of enactments that continue to this day, promoted by Labour as much as by the Tories. Such legislation aims to create the impression that the problems faced by the working class, unemployment, poor housing, poor schooling, poor health care, etc., are caused by black immigration and can be alleviated by halting it. The West Indian Gazette campaigned vigorously against these racist laws, exposing the hypocrisy of the, ta of the Tory and Labour politicians who supported them, tirelessly organising demonstrations and pickets. Although all this work was not able to free Britain from racist legislation, it cannot be denied that the consciousness raising that it brought about was fundamental to the eventual passing of the Race Relations Act 1975, which Fenner Brockway had been sponsoring for many years before it was finally treated seriously, and which has, notwithstanding its many weaknesses, played an important part in reducing the injustice met out to the people on the basis of their skin colour. The Notting Hill Carnival arose out of all the activities surrounding the response to the Notting Hill riots. Claudia Jones was very much its moving spirit. She saw it as a way of putting people back in touch with their cultural traditions, reminding them of all they had to be proud of, while at the same time extending the hand of friendship to white people by sharing the joyous culture with them. Not only did she organise the first carnival, an indoor event that took place at St Pancras Town Hall, but she also arranged for it to be televised and broadcast to the nation. Again, the West Indian Gazette was invaluable for ensuring the success of this event, for its interest in Caribbean artistic developments, for making the necessary contacts and for making sure it was packed out. While Claudia was alive, Carnival continued to be an indoor event, but it ultimately moved outdoors to Notting Hill to join traditional British celebrations that had been held there on the August bank holidays. So popular were the Caribbean contributions that it was not long before the Notting Hill Carnival became the celebration of Caribbean culture, enjoyed not only by people of Caribbean background, but by all sections of British society. In conclusion, because she was a communist, Claudia Jones could not be hurt by white racism. Her attitude would be that, as a communist, her duty was to do all in her power to help white people overcome the prejudices that tied them to the exploiters and oppressors, the common enemy of white and black proletarians alike. For this reason, she could never have been seduced by the siren songs of black nationalism, as the record of her political activity proves. Claudia fully understood the class basis of racism. Not only that, she realised why this racism was festering among the working class, fostered by the labour aristocracy. 
These artificial divisions and antagonisms between British and colonial workers, already costly in toll of generations of colonial wars and ever-recurrent crises, have delayed fundamental social change in Britain and form the very basis of colour prejudice. The small top section of the working class, bribed and corrupted and benefiting from this colonial robbery, have been imbued with the racist white superiority poison. Claudia was a loyal communist with a deep understanding of Marxism-Leninism. She was a born organiser and indomitable spirit, and we in Britain are extremely lucky to have had her among us for the last nine years of her life. Her spirit and commitment are an example to us all when we remember that she would get up out of her hospital bed to attend political meetings and then return to it. Let us remember Claudia, pay homage to her, and strive to follow the example that she set in literally giving her life to the movement, thereby living forever in the hearts and minds of progressive people the world over. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.